Everybody got quiet, so I guess you're expecting me to say something now. <laughs> Well, let's turn to Genesis chapter 3 tonight. And thanks again to John for teaching last Wednesday night. I appreciate you filling in the gap there for me. So we, we've spent some time already in Genesis 3, and of course we're picking back up in verse 8 tonight, but uh, being that we had a week away from it and um, where we're going tonight, I'm just going to read through them again because that's, I went back and looked at my notes again from two weeks ago, and we didn't spend much time on, gen, on verse 7. I'm going to touch on it just a little bit more before we jump into the actual, as I titled it, the confrontation in the garden when, when God comes back into the scene here. Um, so that said, let's read verse 1 through 7, and I'm going to make a couple extra comments on, on 7 before we go beyond that. <clears throat> now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it, and you shall not touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make her make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, as we continue our dive into the book of Genesis, the book of Origins. Um, the past several weeks we've been looking at the, the origin of evil and the, the, the fall. Tonight we come to your account telling us of this confrontation in the garden or this, this uh, examination, discussion in the garden. And Lord, let us be mindful of these things and, and that we would grasp them more deeply perhaps tonight than yesterday and that we would continue to hold such love and reverence for you and for your word and for your truth and God that you would give us a spirit of discernment as we continue to try to be faithful to your word and your clear proclamation in Jesus name I pray amen so like I said there's another point or two I want to make on verse 7 and just to reiterate because I noticed uh, I saw some uh, nods of agreement last week when we or two weeks ago I, I should say that's probably not the last time I'll reference last week when I'm really referencing two weeks ago about them being naked and I want to read again this quote from MacArthur that we read two weeks ago I think it's interesting and important and he says this ever since then ever since the fall and the realization of their nakedness that is clothing has been a universal expression of human modesty it is fitting and right that fallen man should want to cover his shame Naturalists and anthropologists are wrong when they try to portray public nudity as a return to innocence and nobility. Nudity does not recover man, fallen man's innocence. It only displays a denial of the shame we ought to feel. It is appropriate that those bearing the guilt of sin should cover themselves, and God himself demonstrated this when he killed animals to use their skins as a covering for the fallen couple in verse 21. In fact, this was a graphic object lesson showing that only God can provide a suitable covering for sin, and the shedding of blood is a necessary part of that process. 
I know that I saw people nodding in agreement at that quote two weeks ago, so I just wanted to read it again as we go into this. Uh, that's from, I think I got that from The Battle for the Beginning. It's a book he wrote on the Genesis account that's really, really good. I've actually got a paper copy of it if you ever wanted to take it. Um, I'm pretty sure that's where I pulled that from, brother. So I, I just again to separate, to acknowledge the separation that sin caused, because this is talking about the shame and the guilt, but there's also the fact that they covered these themselves is also speaking of separation also. Um, and not only between them and God, but, but which is the most important one to acknowledge here, but it's also showing the gulf that is opened up between man and his wife at this point. Um, th- there's a sense in which they're hiding of their loins, and we see pictures and you know artist renditions of this. We know it's covering their, their sensitive parts, their private parts, whatever, whatever term you want to use. And, and, and it kind of points something to me about... Uh, some kind of blight upon the intimacy that they had shared together or were told that God had gifted them with, that they would cover these things that is such a glorious gift of God for a man and his wife. I think there's something a little more detailed to that that has been kind of in my mind, rolling around in my head the past couple of weeks. Uh, Think about this. It's a covering of the parts in which physically lean to man and wife actually becoming one flesh. And this is what needed to be covered in their minds. But there's some deeper things to think about there. Um, and the beauty of the gift of that within the marriage bed and how sacred that union of man and woman should be is much, much more than just saying vows, although the vows are extremely important. I think it's indicative of one of the biggest issues in marriage, if you want to really get into it. I think I could preach a sermon on marriage from this verse alone. Well, y'all know, better, y'all know me better than that. We'd start in this verse. We'd hit a couple more. To this day, one of the biggest issues in marriage is this secretive, hiding things, privacy between man and woman. And then when something's uncovered, the hell that's wrought after that. That's a huge issue in marriages. Marriages of believers and unbelievers. Secrecy in marriage is destructive. Now, I'm not talking about privacy of needing, you know, to have be in your room reading something. I'm talking about things that you keep that are secret. And I believe this kind of points to that a little bit. Before we move into tonight's text, though, consider one more thing that hit me this last week as I was spending time in these verses. And this is kind of for consideration. For them to take fig leaves or any kind of leave to cover themselves, what happens as soon as you take a leaf? from a vine or from a tree or from whatever else, from a source of life, there's death, right? I mean, that leaf is no longer growing, living anymore. It's slowly dying and decaying. Just something else that kind of popped in my head as I was thinking about this verse. We know God actually offers the first sacrifice when he kills an animal, which speaks of the blood of an animal that he'll talk about later on. So there's not blood involved with taking leaves, but they do begin to die once they're removed from their life source. Anyway, with that said, let's pick up in verse 8 and read through verse 13, and then we'll start looking at these verses. <clears throat> then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. <coughs> Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. 
And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave to me from the tree, and I ate. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. A lot going on in these verses. So let's start by looking at verse 1. I want to kind of look at the, the, the fact that they hid themselves first before we look at God walking in the garden and what, how we kind of look at that and what that, how we should understand that to mean. They hid themselves. They were confront. They already hid their, their shame, their, their sin, what have you, or tried to, I guess I should say. But now something had changed. They hid themselves because they were confronted with the reality, the actual reality of the presence of God. The, the, that he was there versus the fact that he is, he's always there, but he's in the garden there. And this sound, these noise, and these things that they hear, they associate clearly the fact that he is coming in some way, shape, or form. They immediately realized these leaves weren't enough to hide them. It was not enough to cover them. They needed to hide from him. Now, there's a strong emphasis in just that, that they, knowing that they had disobeyed, they sought to avoid this confrontation. Your children do the same thing. You might do the same thing yourself. I know you do, or you have, or you will tomorrow. We try to avoid that confrontation. When we know we've done something we shouldn't have done. Plus, they knew what God said would happen to them, right? That they would die. And we've talked a couple of times. Did they really understand what that means? What level did they understand that? We don't really know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it wasn't good. And all they'd ever known was good until they took of the fruit. Or before they took the fruit, when that sin started taking root in her heart. But it also points to some other things. Do you also see they were unwilling to repent? I mean, you don't go and hide if you're willing to repent for what you did. We'll see that more as this conversation expands. What should they have done? They had no concept of forgiveness, so maybe repentance wasn't an option either. They knew they'd done something wrong, though. Right, but they didn't know that there was any way out of it. They didn't know there was any way out of it. You're right. No, 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 you're right there. And all this defensiveness, the thinking is a result of but yeah. they've never done anything like that and here they are making excuses and pointing at each other and, you know, yeah. and hiding and shows you how quick and how deep sin and flows I guess, I mean I, we can only assume that they had been naked from creation and yeah. they didn't know it I mean, they, they never right. put a word on the concept yeah, you know, yeah well, back in chapter 2, it says the man, the man and the woman were both naked and they were not ashamed. Yeah, probably didn't even know. No. I mean, right. you know, just, it was like... But I think that's why I said back, I wanted to go back to verse 7 for a moment when we went to it because I believe there's something to the fact of in relation to the man and woman's relationship that that was the thing they realized they needed to cover. I can't explain all that, but I think there's something there to that. They never pointed a finger. Yeah, they never pointed a finger. Blame anything. I mean... None of that had ever happened before. and um, But they knew God to be nothing but kind to them. So although they didn't understand the possibility of reconciliation, possibly, because there had never been a need for reconciliation of any kind, they knew God to be kind and good and gracious to them. That's all they'd ever known from him. 
So in that sense, there could be the the thought that he has always been good to us, even though we've disobeyed him. Either way you look at it, they didn't, right? And regardless of the the why, they they didn't. The why really, I think, is sin is already sin is so pervasive that it has already spread through. I mean, it's the quickest running cancer you'll ever find. Instead, they hit. This this speaks to the way depravity first appears. That man is unwilling or unable or unknowing of the fact to honestly repent. Guilty when we are caught. All this is on display immediately after the fall. Look how many different things we see about sin immediately after the fall. The, the lying and the pointing and the backbiting and the eventually blaming God himself. Depravity is that man is unable and unwilling to repent. May see the sin, feel it, experience it, yet unable and unwilling to turn from it. You know, there's a real sense when it comes to some of the most wicked, vile sins you can think of that people feel guilty of. It's not usually in the moment of committing the sin. They actually enjoy that part of it. It's the after effects that make them think, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Even those that are truly, legitimately broken over something they've done, in the midst of doing it very few times, is it understanding, I wish I, not, I, wish I wasn't doing this. Um, so, avoiding God, as if this was even possible, is the first human response to sin in relation to God himself, to hide from him. Because the, the putting on the fig leaves, they're, that's covering something between themselves, really. Because when God showed up, they realized that wasn't enough. That they had to hide. As if that was even possible. Even today, the sinner loves their sin in the moment, like I just said. And even today, the sinner tries to hide from God, as it were. Through whatever means you can you know, think of. Um, even the atheist that denies God, he's trying to hide from God what he's trying to do from the accountability of who God is. Let's look at the beginning of this verse now. They heard the sound, some of y'all have voice, of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, hearing God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I made a couple of word comparison here in some translations. Um, the majority of you probably have sound there. King James, I think, has voice. And some of and and some translations have walking. Some translations might have going forth. Um, I believe the King James actually reads voice walking. Heard the voice of the Lord God walking. Walking, yeah. So the the Hebrew of all of both of those words can lend to either combination of those words. Okay, so it's not a problem of that. It's often a an understanding of how the translators interpret the context of the verse itself of what should be used and how it should be used. So the more common translation is sound and walking speaks more to one of those dollar fifty words I've talked about before of an anthropomorphic sense, which is when God uses language or speaking of body parts about himself to help us understand something he's doing. When he says the eye of the Lord turn the eye of God turned to someone, well Bible tells us God is spirit. Or when he reached out his hand and He's using language that we can understand to kind of understand how his, his uh, providential powers at work and, and, and how he does things. But 
when God uses that language, we can understand it in human terms by addressing body parts as we would have them. But you can't hear a voice walking. I think that's why most common translators say, whether they say sound or voice, they this walking aspect. But more than that, we know the Bible says he's God's spirit without flesh and bones. So that said, some say this is a theophany or a Christophany, and which is basically a divine physical manifestation of some kind of the divinity of God. A theophany is primarily you think of in regards to like the Shekinah glory and some kind of physical representation of God. And the Christophany is more of a, like a pre-incarnate Christ Jesus before he came to the earth um, in his infancy. <coughs> We've seen, we personally, when we studied through the book of Daniel, we saw a couple of instances of that that you might remember. Um, the fiery furnace and then the dream of Daniel when he sees the man standing by the rivers. A couple of places we saw that. But also, there's other places in Scripture. And here's an interesting place in Scripture in Isaiah. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, when you flip over to, say, John chapter 12, verse 41... You read a verse such as this. Now he's talking about he's not talking about this exact play, this exact verse. We're talking about this part of scripture when he says, These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke about him. He saw his glory. He saw some kind of physical divine manifestation of the glory of God present. Now, I lend lead lend towards the Lord God in some form in this verse here because of the personal interaction that ha- takes place and the, 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 the seeming relationship that was there. He also killed an animal and made coverings. That's kind of physical. It is, yeah. Of course, we're not, yeah, he did. So I don't go into the just the anthropomorphism here, although there's a lot of places in, Bible, in the Bible where I do, where he's using a representation of something he did that you can't see by using a human body part. This is some kind of physical manifestation, whether it's a theophany, like, like there's a Shekinah glory of God, or a Christophany type, where it's like a pre-incarnate Christ. I can't nail that down one way or the other, but I, this lends more towards the first person of the Trinity and what's going on here. Excuse me? Do you think Adam saw this person? He God. saw something, whether it's this... Shekinah glory of him, whether it was a human representation? It doesn't look like... You would think there'd be a little bit more reaction if he'd seen something like that. Unless this seems like it was, I, I think this lends to the fact that this isn't the first time God showed up in in a face to face encounter. Uh, I think the relationship was such that the intimacy of that relationship was such that I, I don't. It seems to me, and I'm not trying to read into Scripture too much here, but I don't think this was that obscure of a thing to happen. We're at the beginning of conversation too. I mean it's hard to make that make sense with a sense or a feeling or something. I mean, the, the, well, I, I'm not, the people that would lean towards it just being an anthropomorphism would say that, that yes there was an audible voice just not a physical manifestation. Um, I, I wouldn't arm wrestle anybody over one of the, either one of those. I personally feel more a kind, akin to this personal aspect being more of a personal conversation type thing. Person to hide from 
yeah, I mean, they couldn't hide from his a physical <laughs> manifestation of him either, though. But <laughs> that would also, but but Diane's point there to go back to John's question lends more to me. I think there was a this wasn't something uncommon because of the fact that they hid because they expected some kind of manifestation of him. I believe. Um, yeah, go ahead. You know, Adam. Over, so I mean, they had all of them. Always just in my mind, it was a physical condition. Seeing that happening, so yeah, you know, God can see sin until it falls. You know, the, I personally thought it would be a person, person. Yeah, the, it, I, to, to me, the only question in my mind is it more of a of yeah. a, a theophany, but I think it's some some kind of glorified manifestation of Him um, in my mind and what I read. So we're going to see, as we go to Genesis, Lord willing, however long it takes us to get to Genesis 16, we're going to see a few more of these continue in Genesis, right? In Genesis 16, he appears to Hagar. In Genesis 17 and 18, to Abraham. In Genesis 26, to Isaac. Genesis 28, 32, and 35, to Jacob. We know that some of those accounts pretty well, right, of these times when God appeared to them in a physical form. Now, we know he didn't appear to them in his full glory because they would melt and everything would be destroyed, right? That, that's how glorious God is. But even when his Shekinah glory would come down in, in the midst of the people, it didn't, didn't kill them all. So the, there, there's a way in which he limits that. There's also, in my mind, a tenderness in God appearing to man in physical form, isn't there? A relational aspect of, of man and God, Adam and Eve and God, a loving gesture, now, when you get to the part cool of the day, the literal Hebrew reading would read more like this, the wind of the day. Some of y'all's translations may speak to the wind more there than what mine does, but it, they would think of it as the wind of the day. Now, most commentators today will tell you, most conservative commentators that believe in the authority of the Bible, will t- isn't it sad that I have to say that? Commentators that, have, that stand firm on the authority of the Bible but y'all didn't hear earlier, Brother Roy was talking about a Bible study he listened to today where they were reading through Romans 1, and y'all heard me quote Romans 1 quite often over the years. And you know how I talked about this progression of sin near the end of Romans 1. He said in this Bible study they were reading their scripture and skipped right over verse 26 and 27. Of course they did. Just skipped right over it and didn't even act like it had been there. Like Roy said, if you didn't know the scripture or else you had your own Bible in front of you, you wouldn't know they weren't there. Is that from Lifeway? <laughs> Some YouTube video. I don't know what Roy's watching in his spare time. I'm not going back to <laughs> But uh, if, if you know, just enlighten everybody if they're not familiar exactly with what, what those passages are dealing with. It's the, that's the description of homosexuality. It's what motivates God to draw. Yeah, it starts talking about homosexuality right there. And it's just conveniently. And if, Left you, out. if you read it, leaving out, you can't tell if you don't yeah. know what, if you don't know what's It there. doesn't it affect it. In yeah, yeah. It just went from 25 to 28. Yeah, if you read it as a straight narrative, it doesn't affect it at all. Um, there's a, the Bible talks about people, what happens to people like that. Very clearly. Yep. Um, so most commentators, and I would tend to agree with this, lends to this being at sundown, at the end of the day, the cool of the day, the evening of the day. And a lot of those commentators, I don't know how they come up with this, would say that the, 
deception and the fall maybe happened around lunchtime or midday. I, I don't I, I don't know why midday. The, the point that folks were trying to make, some commentators I read, though, <clears throat> is that it wasn't like one happened and the other happened immediately, that there was some time. to figure out about the fig leaves and how to sow, because none of that they'd ever done before. So yeah, there were some things that took place. Consultation on what can we do about this? And, and in the midst of that, there's more and more time as this sin is becoming more and more and pervasive. All these thoughts. Well, all the thoughts. Think about all the evil, wicked thoughts they've never thought before that are starting to appear within their minds too. Possibly so. They didn't maybe one of them didn't like the way the other one sowed their leaves or something <laughs> like that. They had their first fight. Their first fight, yeah. <laughs> well you know, at this point either they didn't know what death was. So they, God they had told them that you'd surely die. And if they was convicted enough when they took a break, you know, they started cutting themselves, you know, you'd be in a panic saying, what's death like? You know, yeah, they have no idea. I feel this way just from taking a bite of this fruit. You know, what is death? Yeah. Yeah. Regardless of what time of the day it was and all those kind of things, the point of the whole passage is the presence of the Lord in the garden amongst them. That's the point of where we're at so far. Now, how do you hear a sound? You hear the wind, right? This takes me immediately to John 3 when Jesus is talking about the wind and how it blows and, and Pentecost and some other places when we you know, hear, hear of that. Um, that's a perfectly good explanation. I've heard people talk about, well, they had, you know, how do you hear somebody walking? Well, for us, it's they step on something, you know, a broken branch or a leaf or something like that. Well, death had just entered in. There wasn't leaves laying around everywhere. There weren't branches laying around everywhere like after our storms the other night. I just simply think it's, the wind may be brought in the presence of the Lord. It brings in the presence of the Holy Spirit bring in, in a couple of places in Scripture. Um, leaves on the trees blowing, making a noise. They recognized it. So they, they recognized it. And they had time to hide, so it wasn't like they could see him right away. Yeah, that also speaks to the point of ha- them having had some kind of intimate relationships with him personally before because they recognized this sound. Maybe he came every time that day. But possibly. Very possible. I think it's very possible he came every evening. We don't know that for sure. We're kind of speculating. I'd like to think he did, yeah. really. Um, wouldn't, I mean, wouldn't it speak a little bit to the point that, you know, sin separates us from God, and up to that point, I mean, they weren't separated. So, like, it would kind of support the idea that he, he came off of Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think so, 100%. Hid themselves... This speaks to something I've been talking about at work a lot, so I'm not going to go too detailed into this. We'll be here the rest of the night. But um, there's a pervasive inside and outside the church, something I like to call a posture of fear, of people doing things. And and I I run the risk of going down the rabbit hole, so I'm going to try to stop myself short. A posture of fear in management and leadership in the business world. I see it even more in businesses that have Christians steering the ship, honestly, and in many churches today. Yeah, and 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 in Christian in Christian organizations and in churches, a posture of a fear as a way to lead of what might happen, that kind of thing. Anyway, I, I, like I said, I, I was able to pull myself back because I really wanted to go deeper. Now, well, y'all might have a sermon coming up pretty soon on this. 
we've got a point in John where it's a pretty good Paul's point coming very soon. But they were they were coming from a posture of fear, a posture of shame, a posture of guilt. They hid themselves. They were just what Andrew just said. They're alienated from each other now and from God. Look at verse 9. Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, this is important. God addressed the man very purposely. This is the singular masculine pronoun used here. Not Adam and Eve, where are you? Adam, where are you? Why? Eve is not innocent. By no means is Eve innocent. Who had he given the charge and the command to? Who had he given the authority and the responsibility as the head of the household to? Adam. Adam had heard the prohibition directly from God first. He was placed as the authoritative, the authority, the head of the household, and he was responsible to care for, protect, and look after the garden and his wife. Again, Eve is not a victim here. Eve is not innocent here. God calls out Adam first. He gets to Eve too. He gets to her. What else is important to notice about this? How did, how did the serpent, what, what was his, his deal? He went the other way, didn't he? His plan of purpose to begin was to upset everything God had done. So he goes to the woman first. Once she's, however far away she was from Adam at the moment that happened, far enough away that she was more uh, of an easy target for him. Again, important to note, when God says, where are you? You can't hide from God anywhere. We had the call, so apparently there was this distance between. Well, when you look at the word call, no, 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 you're fine, you're fine. You work, look at the word call, it's the same kind of language that's used in the judicial setting of a summons to appear. That's what it's kind of lending to, which leads more into what this question is really asking. Yeah, I mean, we know he knew what they had done, right? And we knew that we know that he knew that they were hiding and knew exactly where they were. They weren't hiding from him. And then it says he speaks to him, called and said. So I've read some that it's like a summons, and you're in front of me now. You're military before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So Adam could no more hide from God than anything or anyone in the universe can. Psalm one thirty nine. Most of you probably knew what I went here when we got to this verse. Psalm 139, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. There's nowhere to hide from God. Anywhere in the universe. It also makes me think of a verse such as Romans. I'm Romans. See, I, Revelation. Revelation 6. If you know where we're at here, we got some judgments getting opened up. Or these are the seals, actually. Romans 6. Uh, Romans. Revelation 6. I'm not going to Romans tonight, so I keep referencing it, I guess. Revelation 6, 12. Then I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth, as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it was rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said, 
And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? That pushes me all the way to the end times when I think about that hiding from trying, trying to hide from God. But back to this call, it's more of a call to an account. It's a call to account, as Roy said, is like a military call to report, um, call to duty. It's, it's like a summons, and that summons wasn't about his physical location, though. It was more to his spiritual condition. That's really what's going on here. We use the same kind of language um, to perhaps our disobedient children. Or maybe even if our spouse does something that we told them not to do. Oh, what'd that get you? How'd that work out for you? Where are you? This is a question similar to that. He's, he didn't have to ask him where he is physically. He knows where he is. And at this point, it was like he's called him out already. Where do you find yourself after that decision? The understanding of what has happened spiritually to him is quite clear based on how he starts to respond immediately. Well, they've already responded, right? They've already covered themselves and hid themselves. There's already been a response start. What else does that give room for? When you ask a question like that to your children, per se, you know what they've done, and you say, what, what, what have you done? What, else, what have you given an opportunity for there? An admission. Confession. Confession. Repentance if we want to use biblical language. It's an opportunity. They didn't understand anything about a system at this point, though, other than they had been given one instruction and they knew they violated it and God had told them something that they didn't understand as a consequence of it. And it, it's a strange situation. It is, but, but let's say this. We have Cain and Abel later, and somewhere God is not in Scripture. But he had communicated some kind of sacrificial system somewhere in there before you get to Cain and Abel. But these people didn't know. No, there was no need for a sacrifice at this point. The first hint comes in the conversation. It does. But let's not unmarry two truths here about Adam and Eve. Let's not unmarry the fact that of their innocence prior to the fall from their intelligence. Because their intelligence... Was was we think about their innocence as almost as them being so childlike that maybe they were, and I'm not saying you're saying this, but I think a lot of us do this sometimes, even inadvertently, that their innocence also meant they weren't very smart. They were extremely intelligent. They were created with a very good mind and a very good body and not corrupted by sin yet. Well, they say that we use like 10% of our mind. I mean, I would assume they used 100% of their mind. If not 100%, they used a heck of a lot more than we do. Yeah. That, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, John. If we have time and y'all want to stay for five extra minutes, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show. Well, I'm going to show you <laughs> potentially show you a piece of that Genesis movie I keep talking about uh, that I want to show here. Maybe the last Sunday of March. I haven't talked to Marty about that yet. That's kind of what I'm thinking about, though. Maybe we'll have something to eat and show this movie. It's about an hour and fifty minutes. I watched the first hour and fifteen twenty minutes of it. They talk about exactly what John's talking about, and and, and the, the the mental capacity of early man versus man today. It's, it's, I mean, these are grade A creation scientists, you know, multiple PhD kind of folks. So I, I'll do it complete injustice to kind of go down that route, especially when I know when we show this movie, y'all hear it from people who know that, have studied that yeah, pretty detailed. Probably like 11%. <laughs> <laughs> they probably do, 10.5 at least. Uh, 
And it's similar to the question he asked Abel. Roy already referenced Cain and Abel, right? Whenever he asked him about his brother, God knew exactly what his brother was. I mean, the corpse is probably still right there. Um, it's terrible. I want you. I want you to grasp this too. In regard, I want a couple things. I want the innocence and the intelligence is one thing. Something else I hope we grasp tonight is um, just as terrible as the fall was and how it's wrecked havoc on everything since then. There's something else that's about to happen here that we have yet to see because there was no need for it. Mercy and grace. We're about to see mercy and grace for the first time. And even in the midst of the curse, we see the promise of a deliverer. We've already seen mercy and grace because God didn't strike them down. I hope we see that too. He didn't strike them down. Verse 10. And he said, this is Adam responding to God. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Okay, Adam, you've got an opportunity to admit your wrongdoing, but you, you say, well, but I'm afraid of you, God. He doesn't say we. He says, ah, he's taking the hit, too. Mm-hmm. Well, that might go back to the fight John talked about that just happened before <laughs> this, before God came up. Adam answers this question, but tries to point to the the physical location also, right? Instead of acknowledging the sin and what it, the disobedience, um, we've done that. Our kids have done that. You ask them that question, trying to get to the rear of the, and you know, they'll, they'll give you another answer, to try to throw you off course a little bit. I find it interesting that the Hebrew word used for heard here from Adam is the same word that can mean obey. Of course, broadly speaking, that's a lie, right? He didn't obey, so. He said he was afraid because he was naked, yet he had just clothed himself. He wasn't, to use Tennessee word, buck naked, right? He was somewhat covered, and so was Eve. That's not the issue. Do we see that? He's, he's lying already, and he's casting down and, and blame and depravity, this depravity is, is taking root and it's just growing and, and, and it's already begun to spread. He doesn't like the consequence of sin, but that doesn't mean he didn't enjoy some of those thoughts possibly. These self-serving thoughts just didn't want to be held accountable. Now, nor what is he not doing here? He's not seeking God's presence. Not seeking God's presence. Regardless of what he knew about whether he could be reconciled or not, whether any of those things could be been could be fixed or not. And if we go with the thought that I think we kind of pretty much will agree with now that this probably was a pretty regular occurrence to some level, can you imagine, Adam, when God would come in the cool of the day before this day that we're reading about? Don't you just imagine him just running to come see God and come spend that time with God? He's doing the exact opposite now. It's heartbreaking in one sense, for sure. Made me think... Of when my children were young, I might tear up just thinking about this. When my children were young and I'd come home from work and the way they would respond to me coming home from work after being home versus as they got older. <laughs> or if they had done something wrong, even when they're little ones, they're not running to try to grab daddy as much unless they think they can get out of it by <coughs> appealing to my sensibilities versus mama's. But the genuine joy that they would see in their face, I mean, I guess the older you get, you maybe you have a dog that does that now, but... <laughs> But that genuine joy, I can imagine that in Adam, can't you? I mean, I, I really feel that. 
Now, there's a couple other things. I really th- I think we'll still get through all this. I keep looking at that clock, and it's actually a little bit, well, a little bit ahead, not too much, like a minute. <laughs> but it makes you think about this, too, or it makes me think about it. Why not people in true Bible stand on the Word of God preaching law and gospel appropriately dissecting the Word and giving it to the, the people properly? Why are in those churches that are being true to God's word, why are you not seeing people saved every single Sunday? Well, nobody gave me a glorious answer right there. The sinners, the lost world, are trying to hide from God. Why in the world will they go to a church that's being true to God's word unless the Spirit draws them in that church and then convicts them and converts them? Why do you have these false teachers that try to dance around everything and skip over Romans one twenty six and one twenty seven and twenty seven? Have churches that are full of people because they can hide from God within the confines and the context of God's name being on a building, and think they're okay. At some level, sinners understand or at least feel this separation. They don't always understand it, right? They don't always understand what it is the separation is. But that separation is present in their life. Whether they, like I said last Sunday, that I hate the terminology "make Jesus the Lord of your life." He is Lord. You don't make him anything. You acknowledge that he's Lord of your life. Also, notice who is the bad guy now? God is. Adam's afraid of him. He's the bad guy. Admittedly, God told Adam he would die. There's a reason to be fearful here, right? I'm not trying to dismiss this at all. He should be afraid. He. But I think it's deeper as we are about to see. Blame game starts already, and it's about to add another layer. Verse 11. And he said, God speaking, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Who told you leads directly. God's getting very direct with him now. Leads directly into the disobedience question. And another opportunity to do what? Repent and have reconciliation. I know you've done it. Own up to it. Now, I do this sometimes in my secular line of work whenever I'm asking a question in, in an investigation or something. I know the answer to the question. I will ask a question for an opportunity to them to respond in the way that I know will answer the question to you already and I don't have to ask it. But sometimes I have to go right to the question too of saying, did you do this? You know, you ask and then you say, did you do, you get very specific then. Y'all probably done that as parents and things yourselves. Or as a manager or something like that. Or a lawyer. That's a a big tactic of a lawyer, right? Now, they don't always know the answer, but they are convincing enough that they do know the answer to whoever they're questioning to make them think they know the answer. Wise counsel to a lawyer to say, don't ask a question, you don't know the answer. That's a very wise... I used to tell when I coached managers and helped managers become better managers, that was the thing I always told them. When you ask a question, you better know the answer to it or be 95% sure you know the answer to it. Now, God isn't taken by surprise. None of these questions are to get information, right? They're not. God doesn't need man to give him any information. He still doesn't today, by the way. I, I know I'm preaching to the choir. In the Hebrew, and even today, this double question points to the fact that Asker knows the question already. So in the Hebrew, 
they use the same thing that we do today of asking this double question like this. And it's another way for an opportunity to come clean. Look back to, to 3.1 again for a second. I know we've already read it. In Genesis 3.1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said. Now catch what God says in verse 11. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? There's a different connotation there. And, and the serpent kind of pulled back some of the bite of the command there. He kind of made it more of a, well, God, sure God said that. God says, I commanded it, right? We say stuff and then we command or we, or, or, that's, that's a much more strong term. Again, it just shows you the deceitfulness of, of, of Satan and his craftiness. I looked that word up in Hebrew too to see what else can be used for that Hebrew word. And it can be ordered, ordained, laid charge of, give direction of. It's a strong word. So instead of falling on his knees to ask for forgiveness, and rec- there's no hiding the fact that God knows exactly what he had done. So regardless of what he knew or understood about repentance or reconciliation or if it was even possible, this is still a very appropriate time for him to do just that. We see the pervasiveness of the, the early impact of sin. We see depravity. It's so much deeper than what people think. It's not just the sick sinner needing the Jesus aspirin. Okay? Dead in your trespasses and sins, as Romans says. Look at verse 12. A weak confession from Adam. And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave to me from the tree and I ate. Adam's not just blaming one. He's doubling down. Right? He's, you, yeah, I did it. Okay, you got me. I did it, but it's somebody else's fault. Guys, this is the first introduction we have to see, and the pattern hasn't changed all these thousands of years later. What does he say? The woman, it's her fault. But you know what? Really, it's your fault, God, because you gave her to me. She wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for you. MacArthur jokes around that I went to sleep and I woke up and there she was. I didn't ask for her. She gave it to me. It's everybody's fault but whose? But Adam's. I'm a victim of my circumstance. I'm a victim of my environment. I'm a victim of this fill in the blank. The same stuff being used today. And the disgrace of it is really he's laying it at God's feet. God is really your fault. You gave her to me. Had you not given to her, her to me, this would have never happened, God. It's the woman's fault, but really God. To Adam, not too long before he was so... Remember, not too long ago. Remember what we talked about whenever God gave him Eve and gave them to each other, really? It's not just that he gave Eve to Adam. He gave Adam to Eve also, if we're being honest about it. How joyful he was and how happy he was. She's the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen. I was wondering if somebody would, you know, laugh at that at least. Probably about <laughs> So enamored by her that God would bring them together. Not too much longer this happens, so we don't know exactly how much longer. It's hard to get a straight answer out of a depraved man too, isn't it? That also speaks to a, from a lawyer standpoint. You can't get a straight answer out of somebody who's so corrupted by this and trying their best to shift blame. God wasn't standing there. He denied its existence. That's a, something that 
Well, that's a strong that's a strong comment to make right there, but it's true. The whole world can be falling down around the lost, unregenerate person today, and they still, in some way, shape, and form, will curse a God that they said they didn't believe in a second ago. Like the old analogy or the old comment that's true that I think came about in World War I, there's no atheist in a foxhole. When it looks like the end is near, things change. Promote not everybody. We know of people, though, Stephen Hawking and some of those folks. The love of God has been smothered by their sin and depravity. They need nothing of God but his, his love. They're receiving his mercy and his grace at this very, very second. Verse 13. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. It's not her fault either. Is she totally being, is she she lying completely there? No, that is what happened. But as we said, there had to be something that he he touched a nerve with her about this tree. We don't know all those details of what was going on, but it didn't take much for him to convince her to eat. It didn't take Adam any convincing. Yep, that's true because she'd never, which as we talked a couple of weeks ago, right, that, that yes, she'd never seen a contrast or a concept of the opposite of good until this happened. So I didn't look that word up in the Hebrew. It's a good, a good response, Dan, because maybe it, it's maybe it's has some kind of root in the opposite of deception and, and how it's kind of laid out there. But the question again isn't to gain knowledge right from Eve but an opportunity for personal admission so he gives her that opportunity too How her response though is the serpent is to blame he tricked me and I ate yeah I ate but it's somebody else's fault I did it but somebody else made me do it well y'all know what that means next week will Lord willing we'll be talking about the curse itself what comes next so any questions or thoughts there before I shut the camera off all right let's pray father God we're so grateful again Lord we're grateful that we get to to know of our history Lord to know of the history of man as painful it is as it is sometimes to read Lord we would have done the same thing God how grateful we are that through this perhaps because of this, you show us your mercy and your grace. God, you're glorious. We're so grateful for you. We're so grateful you've called us into this relationship with you. Let us never take it for granted. Let us sing of your mercies forever. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. <coughs> Any other thoughts?